Hello, and welcome to another episode of the CBO Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Donna Sheely. Thanks for joining us today. Today, we have Samuel Sudarkar. He is the Vice President and Chief Financial Officer at California State University, San Bernardino. Welcome, Samuel. Thank you. Thank you, Donna. Thank you for having me. So excited to have you. So I want to go back. Uh, I always like to start from your beginnings of your undergrad. And I believe you were in India at that time when you did your undergrad. So talk to us about your journey as it leads up through all the way. Well, we'll get to where you are now, but just your schooling and all of that. So I, you know, I grew up in India. I went to engineering school in India and finished my undergraduate degree in electronics and communications engineering in 1989. And right after I finished my undergraduate degree, I moved to the United States to pursue my master's degree. So that time, of course, there was uh, different paths that you could take, master's in engineering or management, et cetera. So I chose the management path. So I uh, joined uh, St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, for my master's degree in management and information systems. I really liked uh, that track more than the engineering track. As I was uh, studying my MBA program at St. Joseph's University, I worked in a convenience store chain uh, just to support myself. It was called Wawa Food Markets in the Philadelphia area. As I was nearing completion, uh, of my MBA program, they gave me a job in the corporate office. From They took me from the convenience store uh, to a corporate job, and that's a story of its own where I developed a concept for the convenience store chain that would control the inventory system automatically rather than manually. So people in the corporate saw that concept, and they said, you need to come and work for us in corporate. So uh, I worked in corporates uh, till I finished uh, my MBA degree. And uh, family circumstances uh, made me move to Galesburg, Illinois, from Philadelphia. Uh, my wife was in uh, Galesburg, Illinois. So I moved to Galesburg, Illinois, started to work um, at a small computer a software firm a, in Moline, Illinois, computer application specialist. I was traveling all across the country installing software uh, systems for the company, which was actually based out of England. They had a branch office in Moline, Illinois. I did that for a couple of years, and then I worked for a catalog company for a couple of years in Galesburg. A variety of experiences um, as director of information systems and really the hands-on tech person. So that's a programmer in Wawa to hands-on tech person. So really, uh, my MBA wasn't very useful in the jobs that I did because it was highly technical. It was more based on my undergraduate degree. And at that time, uh, as I was completing two years in the catalog company, uh, uh, an opening came at Carl Sandburg College in Galesburg, Illinois, for a dean of information technology. So I applied for the job, got in, and that was my first experience in higher education, Carl Sandburg College in Galesburg, Illinois. So I I, I went there and I completely redesigned their technology systems. And they always say I took them out of the dark ages into a modern technology era. I served at Carl Sandburg College for 14 years, during which time uh, Carl Sandburg College was named uh, among the top 10 tech-savvy community colleges in the entire United States. 
we got that uh, that honor six times in a row. Mm, that's awesome. Among the top 10 tech savvy community colleges. During my stay there, I also finished my PhD at uh, North Central University. And uh, after I finished my PhD in 2013, I was looking for opportunities to grow higher. During my tenure at Carl Sandburg College, I moved from Dean of Technology Services to Vice President of Technology Services and CIO, and also another promotion to Vice President of Administrative Services and CIO. So I took on more of the administrative role uh, than just the technology role. I was in charge of finance, UPD, the library, and a lot of other uh, portfolio at Carl Sandburg College. When I finished my PhD, an opening came at uh, Cal State San Bernardino for VP for IT, VP for IT technology. So I applied and I got the job here, moved from Galesburg, Illinois to San Bernardino, California. Big change. <laughs> Around 33,000 people to, uh, to, to big time California. Never imagined that I would be in California. So, you know, I had built my career around learning and being open to expanded portfolios and things that I wasn't an expert in, I didn't feel comfortable in, but still wanted to pursue those opportunities that will lead me to a career trajectory in higher education. I really felt that my calling wasn't higher education since I started in Colesandburg College because I saw the lives of students and their communities transformed by the education that they received. Uh, whether it's a two-year education or a four-year education, it really transforms the life of the person who's pursuing it. And they go back and transform their families and their communities. So I thought higher education is a, is a noble calling. It's a great calling to be in. And it's exciting to um, tackle the complex you know, uh, problems in higher education. So um, I decided to just stay in higher education all, all through my career. Came here uh, in 2013. I moved to uh, California State University, San Bernardino, as a VP of IT and CIO. Fast forward to uh, during the pandemic 2020, I had an opportunity to step into the role of VP for administrative administration and finance because our VP had, um, had left. So um, I did both the jobs for about two years, managing IT and also admin and finance. And I was named as the uh, as the permanent VP for finance, technology and operations in August of this year. Goodness. Congratulations on that. Well, let's talk about because you have a, a, a interesting perspective of moving from the technology to the administrative side. Talk to me about that transition and what that was like for you. So uh, I've never been a traditional IT person or a CIO. Even when I was a dean of technology services and um, and VP of IT at Carl Sandburg College, I always think about the larger costs the bigger picture of why we are here doing what we are doing. It's not about the blinking lights in the server room that's beautifully organized and providing services to our students, faculty, and staff, the great mobile applications that we are rolling out. It's about how does technology contribute to the transformation of lives and to, to the future of the students who come to, Cal, uh, to the California State University or to Carl Sandburg College. I've always think thought about the outcomes of our students, outcomes of our faculty and staff. So 
while I was an expert in technology, I was always concentrating on how does technology contribute towards the transformation of lives and communities? And how does finance play a role in it? How can we do it in a manner that's efficient, cost-effective? How do you reduce fixed operating expenses while uh, enhancing the services that you provide to our students, faculty, and staff, and our community at large? And that's always been my focus. So it was just a natural for me to be in the finance role because while I, I know technology and I'm an expert in technology, I was always uh, this person who said technology, finance, operations, they all support the academic mission of the institution. They don't lead, but they support. So I always have worked very closely with the provost and with the VP of Student Affairs and saying, how can I support you in advancing the academic mission of the institution? I worked very closely with the faculty members, with the chairs. How can IT or finance or procurement help you in advancing your disciplinary progress. So I was thought about thought in that sense. So the transition wasn't very difficult for me. And talk to me a little bit about how that was managing when you were doing both, because I think you had a unique perspective of actually being in the IT department and being on the admin side. Talk to me about the advantages of that, because you were actually, you know, you could see, okay, this is what we need here because that you were over that. So talk about some of the advantages that you found when you were doing both roles. You know, one of the effectiveness of a leader comes from developing a number two uh, and a succession plan. And over the ten, uh, nine, eight or eight, nine, nine years I was a VP of IT, I had really empowered leaders within IT to be ready for the next step in their career. So I had a deputy CIO who I was grooming to be a CIO. I had a number two for my deputy CIO. We were grooming. And we had this people first initiative at IT where we, uh, I met with every employee in IT one-on-one, 20 of them, one-on-one, spent half an hour with them to find out where, where they were with their, with their career goals. What motivates you to come to work? What are your future plans? And I took copious notes and I discovered there were so many people within IT who had the thirst to move up and do better and become management. So slowly but surely over the 10 years, we really brought a lot of people up to management level. We empowered people. We gave them the tools to be the best at what they were and really paid attention to people. I think people are the biggest asset in an organization. And that's been my focus all through my career. You know, uh, when people come to work, they have, they, they not only want to contribute to the vision and mission of the institution, but if they want to see themselves in the vision and mission of the institution, you got to pay attention to what their personal vision and mission is. And over the years, we had developed a strong infrastructure in IT. So when I moved over, uh, taking over this division, I had very, very strong people supporting me on the IT side. So we never missed a beat uh, on the IT side over the two years. So that's what made the president say, oh, he can do this and still IT can be a part of his portfolio. So that's kind of how we did that. It was it was tough, right? Uh, it's a lot of hours because we were transitioning over. But the two years had, had really prepared us for becoming a new division that now encompassed, encompassed IT inside it. 
Well, speaking of that, you're talking about succession plans. Talk about your mentors and people who kind of helped you along the way during your career. Absolutely. I've had had many of them. And right from my days in Wawa, you know, I've, I've been blessed with people who saw the potential in me and they always uh, they always gave me opportunities for the next step in my career. And that's that became my motivation to do the same for others. Right. Um, if if people were um, were not sympathetic and, and just said, this is your job, this is what we hired you for, do your job and go home kind of thing, then I would have never succeeded in my career. So um, I've had mentors in Wawa Food Markets. I had mentor. I had a really good mentor at Carl Sandler College, who was the then president, who's now retired. He was a VP of Finance before he became the president, um, and uh, he was a tremendous mentor. And then now at, at Cal State San Bernardino, our president Tomas Morales has been a, a, a very, very uh, big supporter and a mentor to me. And a lot of my success I, I attribute to our president uh, at the moment. Uh, when you have mentors, you are also a mentor for others. So you got to remember that you, you not only take, but you give. And, you know, when I leave Cal, Cal State San Bernardino at some point in time, you know, I want the organization to be in, in such a great shape that people are ready to step into that role and and take the institution to the next higher level. So, Samuel, talk to us about everything that's under your leadership at California State University. So finance, technology, and operations. So so finance uh, encompasses everything from university budget, $337 million budget uh, that we manage. We have a distributed budget model. So uh, we allocate a percentage to each of the divisions. We have five divisions. Academic affairs, student affairs, university advancement, uh, human resources, and finance, technology, and operations. But we con- we manage the budget. We administer the budget for the entire institution. We have student financial services, which is a huge for- part of our operation. And I consider that as the most critical of my portfolios because we don't want students to fall through the cracks because they don't have the money to pursue higher education. So every day, we uh, we look at students who owe us money and find out what pockets of money do we have in the institution, scholarships, endowments, financial aid, all kinds of resources to see where can we match the students with the dollars. Often in the higher education institutions, there are pockets of funds and there are needy students and they never get connected. Mm. Over the last two years, w- working with the Nakubo Project, what I've discovered is people don't connect it to the to to the pockets of money and they drop out. And we need to prevent that from happening. So that's a big part of every day. My leadership team, every day I talk to the finance and administrative services leadership team, work with financial aid, student success, and let's wrap around 360 degrees. Because finances is one of the major reasons students drop out. Economic probation and academic performance is all part of the equation, but finances play a major role. So my goal is to not make sure that you're not dropping out of CSUSB just because you don't have the money to pursue, because we have so much resources we can bring to bear for our students. So that's finance. Technology is IT. You know, we have 120 staff, big portfolio, academic technology, administrative technology, and infrastructure. Uh, wireless, wired technologies, uh, mobile app development, all this happens 
And every day we are empowering our students, faculty, and staff to do better with technology. And then operations is facilities, facilities of roads and grounds and building maintenance, and also new construction. The um, FPDC operation, facilities planning, design, and construction, which designs and delivers new buildings. Then I have um, the University Police Department, huge portfolio. We have 19 officers, the dispatch, parking and transportation, that call, all comes under that portfolio. Um, and then the uh, uh, and and then the university audit, internal audit, the auditor reports to my office and so takes care of all the audit services across the campus, internal audits, as well as facilitating chancellor's office audits. So uh, about uh, 490 people in total. Uh, and I have five senior uh, leaders who uh, report into my office who really helped me run the operation. And, you know, you seem I, I can tell that you are into the success of people and your students and student success. Talk to me a little bit. And is that your most rewarding responsibility? Do you feel that at what you do? Absolutely. You know, if we are sitting in our offices, we can be busy all day and not make make zero impact on our students because there's so much work to do there that we we tend to spin our wheels, paying our bills, making sure the UPD is staffed, all this kind of stuff, right? But at the end of the day, I I will sit in a thinking chair and think about today what impact have I made to towards the success of my students and faculty and staff, right? So are the reason we are here. If there are no students, we, we don't need to exist. But then it's the faculty and staff who support the students in every aspect of their experience at CSUSB. So we were very, very close to the faculty community because faculty are the reason students come to the university. It's, it's, it's the faculty's expertise that they impart every day in the classroom. It's their collaboration with research with the faculty. It's the networking that they do with their fellow classmates when they come to campus. So it's just uh, the overall student experience is heavily influenced by the academic side. So we're very close to our faculty, our chairs and deans. Uh, and on the student affairs side, we are very close to everybody who supports their students uh, from financial aid to advising to extracurricular activities. We want our students to have a 360 overall holistic experience when they come to campus. So whoever supports our students, we are right behind them supporting them. And also, I know you're a member of the uh, president's DEI board. Let's talk a little bit about DEI and the importance that is that that the president has on that at California State University right now. So CSUSB is, uh, is leading the DEI effort across the system. In fact, we won recently, we won an AASCU award for the president's DEI board. During the pandemic, um, the president uh, got the VPs together and, and he said, we need to uh, really advance DEI in our organization. He's passionate about it. And you can, everything that he does is made, is through the lens of equity. And bringing people who are underprivileged and who historically marginal, marginalized to the mainstream. So we formed the D, president's DEI board that's made up of president and vice president, the president's cabinet. It's a very high level. We have, we have three co-chief diversity officers. 
this is some, something that doesn't exist and it's very, very effective in our institution. Most institutions will have a VP of diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, who will drive the DEI efforts for the campus community. So we have uh, three co-chief diversity officers. Of course, you can go and read about the DEI, uh, CSUSB's DEI on, on our website. Very, very comprehensive. So the three co-chief diversity officers are our VP of HR, is a co-chief diversity officer, dean of students on the student affairs side, and then on the academic side, the vice provost for academic programs is a, a co-chief diversity officer. So if you think about it, these are the three major areas where we impact diversity, right? And then there are subcommittees. There are six different subcommittees, staff, recruitment, retention, and development subcommittee, alumni subcommittee, student success subcommittee, faculty uh, advancement subcommittee. So there are six different subcommittees that cover the entire campus community. In fact, our strategic plan that was uh, recently uh, finished, 23 to 28, one of our four pillars is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Student success, faculty success, faculty and staff success, DEI, and internationalization. These are our four goals of the of the recently completed strategic plan. So it's embedded inside the fabric of our university. We've been doing it for two years, two plus years. And, you know, we're getting more and more sophisticated every day in making sure that people have a sense of belonging in our institution, regardless of what their background is, regardless of what views they hold. We want everybody's voice to be heard, everybody to feel a sense of belonging, everybody to contribute uh, their voices into the advancement of the, our, the success of our students, faculty, and staff. So, you know, it is, it is such an important part of our portfolio that every other week, the president holds the DEI executive committee meeting. It's a one hour meeting, checking in, circling the wagon to see, and, and we collect data. We track metrics. It's not just the activities. It's the outcomes. And the president reports on the efforts at his commencement address every year. We publish that on the website. So it's not a check the box in CSUSB. It's a very, very deep-rooted effort. Yeah, I was going to ask, what are what are you seeing as a result of the meeting? So that's very good that you're just not checking boxes. So that's awesome. I love to hear that. So talk to me a little bit about what you think the future of higher ed is right now. You know, we're hearing negative, you know, not so many positive things all the time about it. So talk to me about your personal purview of higher ed. So higher education has dramatically shifted in the last couple of years post-pandemic, right? Um, the the uh, pandemic taught us that we are capable of doing a lot more in a lot different modalities than we could ever imagine. If we had told our faculty, oh, you need to teach online pre-pandemic, they would be like, uh, right. good luck with that, right? <laughs> um, but everybody was forced to go into that modality. And over the last two years of pandemic, people kind of refined the way they taught online. Some have really become experts in the way they delivered pedagogically sound instruction online. There's a need for a mix of both. When students come to campus, first of all, we need to meet students where they, at the, where they need to be met. It's no longer that you come to the institution and will deliver education. 
students have become very consumeristic post-pandemic. And they're like, uh, if you were able to deliver education to me online or in hybrid modality during the pandemic, why don't you do that now? So I can work, take care of my family. So don't tell me this cannot be done. So the myth of this cannot be done has gone out the window. So we need to meet the students where they need to be met uh, because of the consumeristic attitude. And if we don't meet the students where they need, we are going to go obsolete and out of business. Number two, we need to deliver what the students need, not only meet them in their modality, but also need uh, meet, uh, deliver what they need. So I always use this uh, analogy. We are, higher education is one of the institutions that produces widgets that nobody buys. So we have programs, we have, this is controversial, that nobody wants that we are still putting out. We need to adapt to the modern needs of the industry and academia to say, what do the students need? And it could be that short-term courses that stack up and contribute towards a degree. You take one course at a time, you get one badge at a time that are skill-based, that are real industry-based, that stacks up to a degree program, rather than saying, you come to us for four years and we'll give you a degree. I want to learn skills that I can use in the marketplace as I'm pursuing my degree uh, and internship opportunities. And it, higher education has to dramatically change. Otherwise, we're going to go out of business. I think for the longest time, we thought, oh, man, higher education is never is always going to be here. But, uh, you know, there are private providers and even the Arizona State Universities of the world who are coming into our markets and saying, hey, this is what you need. This is what we're going to give you. And you can take it at your pace. You can take it at the modality of your choice. If we don't realize that, we are in trouble. Just like the market, market will demand, market will determine what higher education is going to be like, right? Uh, if we don't produce what they need at the time that they need it, then we're going to be irrelevant in the future. So uh, at, Cal at uh, California State University, we think about that every day. Um, how can we enhance our continuing ed and our non-state programs to deliver what the students are looking for? And how can we tap into international markets, for example, and bring students from international markets and other states and uh, constantly thinking about how, how do we redefine higher education? I love the student focus, student success. I love that. It's a constant theme with you. And I, I really, I really like that. Um, talk to me about your future, Samuel. What do you see yourself in the next few years in higher ed? So, uh, you know, when I started out um, as uh, in higher education back in 99, I thought, hey, one day I should be a community, I should be a community college president, right? So that was kind of my trajectory. And the president at that time pulled me aside one day and he said, hey, uh, if you want to be in higher education, you got to get a PhD. So that was very, very good advice because, you know, I had an MBA and I didn't really think about getting a PhD. So when our president uh, at that time, Dr. Don Christ, said that, I said, okay, let me look around. And in Galesburg, Illinois, it's a small rural town, really not many universities around there, so I can pursue my degree. So I chose North Central University because it was a fully on online accredited university. By the way, North Central University is now a national university. And, uh, Dr. Milliron is the president and CEO of National University now. So I pursued uh, my uh, my PhD program. It took me seven years, you know, very slow, but finally got it done in 2013. 
but it was a very rich experience, taught me endurance more than anything else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Once I finished that, I, I looked at community college presidencies and really felt like I wasn't really ready for a presidency at that point in my career. I didn't have the enough credentials, really, quite honestly. And so I said, let me pursue uh, IT uh, VP in a bigger university than Carl Sandburg. So this is a 21,000 big university, 21,000 student university. So I came here and, um, and and then I, you know, right now I think I'm happy where I'm at and um, I'm not sure if I still want to be a president because it's, it's uh, very, very satisfying to be the number two and make that difference and, and, and supporting a, a leader with a vision. So at this point, I'm just, uh, you know, doing a lot of work with AI, you know, um, and see where, where the future leads me. If, if there's a president in the future, that's fine. But, uh, but I'm taking it one day at a time, really trying to make a difference here at uh, Cal State San Bernardino. And before we close, let's talk about some resources that you may recommend for those who are looking to be a CBO and kind of get on that track. What are some re- resources that you recommend? You know, regardless of what your career is currently, CBO is a, is a good track to pursue because at the end of the day, you have a lot of control over things, but you also have a lot of in, in, influence over things. Uh, it's not the control, it's the influence that's more important, right? Uh, you have an influence in making sure funding and resources are available to areas that are making the most positive impact on our students rather than areas that always used to be there, right? That no longer are effective for our students, faculty, and staff. So I have an opportunity to think about P&L, right? Where is the profit in terms of our biggest bang for the buck, return on investment in terms of our student success? Where can I invest that I can improve the graduation rates, time to degree completion, those kinds of things? And you have an opportunity to influence those areas. So that, that, you know, money plays a big role. It's not the only thing, but money plays a big role. So I have the influence to do that. But for an aspiring CBO, I think you have to look at the core business, whatever field you're in, you have to look at the core business. Finance is not the core business of CSUSB. IT is not the core business of CSUSB. Academic mission, courses, programs, curriculum, that is at the, at the heart of a uni- higher education university. So you got to f- say, how can I make my provost the most successful provost in the academic programs area? How can I make our student affairs VP the best student affairs VP? So when students come here, they say, hey, I had the richest experience here at, at the university, right? So you have to put your efforts behind people who are serving the core mission of the university. If you want to be the leader, then you got to be the provost or the president and lead that effort. But as a CPO, you are in a support role. Got to remember that you don't lead, you, you support, you cheerlead and you bring them all the resources to the table that, that my president and my provost and my VP for student affairs needs to succeed, right? That's my, that's been my mentality and, and mindset all along. I want my co- colleagues to succeed and then pay attention to AI. Artificial intelligence. I took a course and passed a course on prompt engineering from Vanderbilt University uh, through Coursera. 
look at all the courses that are available in OpenAI, Google Bard AI, and look at how can AI contribute to your career. I use AI every day in my job today, every single day. What it brings to bear is unbelievable. And if you didn't, don't discover AI, uh, you're going to be left behind. You got to be ahead of the curve on artificial intelligence. And right now I'm pursuing my advanced front engineering course with Vanderbilt University. So you, you got to run faster than AI is going to be deployed. In a, in a year or so, AI is going to be so prevalent that if you are not familiar, if you don't become an expert on AI, you're going to be left behind. So that's something that I would definitely advocate. Uh, and, you know, get to know great leaders and uh, develop a relationship and pick their brain on how they became great and uh, what motivates them every day. Can you give an example of what you use AI for on a day-to-day basis? AI, of course, ChatGPT is a very, very familiar AI and Google Bard, right? Uh, so those are the most familiar ones. ChatGPT has a um, free version and an advanced version. And for the advanced version, you have to uh, you have to stand in line. You can't just go and sign up for it. So as I started pursuing my advanced uh, AI course. I discovered I needed a AI subscription for advanced chat GPT. So I'm like, okay, let me go and buy it. It's like, nope, you're, you have, there's too many people waiting in line. So I had to wait for two weeks, not too bad. And finally I got in. So the advanced chat GPT allows you to pr- feed spreadsheets, feed PDF documents, give you intelligence about what you're finding in a document. You could feed a 200 page document to advanced chat GPT and say, Give me summary notes of this document rather than reading through the entire thing. How does this document contribute to my current profession? So I could be reading 200 books in a week and getting summaries of that without actually reading the book. So I can feed in financial scenarios into advanced chat CPD and have it, have it create scenarios for me, performa for me. It's just, it's unbelievable. I, I'm only scratching the surface on that. There's a lot more. <laughs> yeah, I, I can only imagine. No, that's good. That's good to give us that insight, too, because it's it's here and it's not going anywhere. So right. it's not a fad. Yeah, it's not a fad, just like the Internet. <laughs> no, right. It is not a fad. So we need to learn how to make it work for us and how to use it in the right way. So that's very good. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us today, Samuel. We really appreciate your time. You're welcome, and thank you for having me here. Oh, so excited. And, you know, thank you all for joining us today for this episode of CBO Speaks, brought to you by the National Association of College and University Business Officers. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of research and tools at nkubo.org. Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks wherever you get your podcasts and so that you can get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Samuel Sudakar of California State University, San Bernardino, I want to thank you for joining us on CBO Speaks. I'm Donna Sheely. Be well. CBO Speaks is a production of the National Association of College and University Business Officers. Audio engineered by Andy Nelson and True Story FM. Music by Michael Bean. Post-production support by Janelle Dempsey. And I'm your host, Donna Sheely. Thank you for listening.